This is our first proper lecture of this course. We had a kind of introductory session earlier this week, went through the syllabus. Uh, and if you remember in that session, I was in particular wanting to introduce things. Think about the new evangelization and where does the presentation of the moral life sit within the new evangelization? Is it an obstacle to get over? Or is it actually something so beautiful that it's a tool to actually bring somebody to the Lord Jesus? Now, in the reading I asked you to do for today um, from a theologian called Sylvain Pinquez, a French Dominican, passed away not that long ago. He's giving you an overview of history. And he's describing how the methodology, the approach to moral theology has varied over the centuries. What he describes as St. Thomas's approach, that's what I'm going to be articulating in this course. So what I'm arguing the catechism has sought to return us to um, is relevant to that question of the new evangelization in that, as I'm going to try and argue, um, if virtue is our focus, then we've got something much more attractive as our focus than if the law and obligation and duty are our focus, um, which is what many presentations of the moral life have made the central theme. So, starting with a single sheet summary. the history of moral theology. So broadly speaking, I'm breaking this down into three periods. And this is following the methodology, the focus of Pinker's St. Thomas nominalism and the manuals. Um, so St. Thomas, in his approach, we think of the nature of things and the end to which they are directed. And one of our primary questions within that is the question of fulfillment. John Paul, is that too small to read? Manuals. There are eight empty seats in front of you. Um, in the structure of St. Thomas, what does it mean to be moral? Well, it means to achieve your end. Um, the structure that he follows so if we look you know the Summa Theologica five volumes big book what's the structure he uses in the presentation of the moral life well he starts with the question of the end that you're striving for as a human being how happiness is that end. He has the theological virtues. 
as the structure with um, faith, hope, and charity. And then the four cardinal virtues. So you'll notice in that structure, the commandments are not the structure of his table of contents. Okay, you've all done philosophy, done some of you years of philosophy. Um, who can remind me what nominalism is? Anybody? Bit more particular than that, but that's the key. Th Names don't correspond to universals. Right. What were you going to say? Um, was it like the idea that, or just in general, that like obligation is, is placed higher than Okay, we'll come back to that question, but you're right. Obligation becomes a primary thing in nominalism. Though that's with moral theology. Um, Hunter and Francesco were kind of focusing us on the primary question of nominalism per se, so to speak. Uh, kind of nominalism says there is no per se. There is no essence of a thing. There is, in particular, no natures. All there are are names. There's what I call things, but that doesn't mean I can know what it is in itself. So there are, if there are no natures, then there can be no ends, and there can be no fulfillment. What that means is being moral isn't about achieving your end, isn't about fulfilling your nature, Moral is just about obeying the commandments. It's about keeping the law. I don't know if you've looked at this question in your moral philosophy. You may do this with Dot D in ethics. How many of you are doing ethics in parallel with this? Not all of you, but half of you. Okay. The question, does God command it because it's good? Or is it, is it good because God commands it?
So if God commands you to hate him, does it therefore become the right thing to do because God has commanded it? That therefore it is good to hate God because God has commanded it. That in the nominalist approach is coherent. Goodness means what God has commanded. There is no nature of things. We cannot say God is of a certain kind of thing and therefore he, he can't command you to hate him because there is no nature. Yeah? With this, there's no essence. No essence. Of your existence. So, that means that, like, you can be, like, your being is whatever you want it. That makes sense. Because if you're not endowed with essence, it's like you can kind of make up your essence. So that's where modern kind of existentialism takes this this thought. Um, in an older focus, the question is, what does God say? Um, God can command utterly random things because he is all-powerful. So like in Islam, which is broadly speaking the same tradition as nominalism, what God commands, the Almighty, that is what matters. And what he commands today is not necessarily the same as what he commanded yesterday. Why does it have to be? He's God. The Aristotelian, the Thomistic approach says, no, God is consistent within himself. Part of his perfection is that he is consistent within himself, that he cannot contradict himself. And what he commands isn't random. It's according, he's a rational being. It has a rational nature. So, if we're going to look at this uh, Thomistically, that God has an intellect. His wisdom, and out of that comes his will, his law, and when we talk about freedom, we're talking about the exercise of his intellect, but that freedom is a secondary concept to his being all-wise, his having an intellect, his being rational. Whereas in nominalism, God's freedom is your primary thing. And his law just is whatever he wants it to be. He just decrees it. And law, as Pinker says, is actually, that's how wisdom is defined. It's whatever God says. Historically, anyone able to remember when these... So St. Thomas 
actually comes about a century before nominalism, but in the era kind of before big printing presses, before the internet, actually his ideas didn't disseminate in the church before nominalism got there. So actually nominalism became more influential in large circles of the church, even though it kind of was written a hundred years or so after St. Thomas. In particular, nominalism, broadly speaking, gives birth to, I'm trying to think of the order, yeah, gives birth to the Protestant Reformation, which gives birth to the Counter-Reformation, and the Counter-Reformation issued these books that we call the manuals. So one of the primary causes of the Reformation, uh, as the Council of Trent analyzed the problem, was the ignorance of the clergy, that they weren't educated. So these manuals were written um, to pull together all the best thinking, all the necessary thinking on all kinds of subjects. And right up to the Second Vatican Council, in a seminary, you would have a standard manual for every course. So you'd come to whatever course and you'd kind of have one big fat book for each course, a manual for that course. And those manuals were like encyclopedias. If you go to the library and look them up for things, they're very comprehensive, but like encyclopedias, rather boring in terms of how they put everything together. But they had in this context, for moral theology, a structure. And you know when you're having an argument with somebody, often when you have an argument with somebody, you can start accepting the premise that they started the argument with. Um, in this context, what we find is the Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation starts with the structure and methodology of nominalism. It engages with it rather than kind of taking a step even further. So it actually has the same legal focus that Protestantism has, even though it's written in Catholic seminaries. So rather than having a metaphysical structure that would be Thomistic, uh, more in keeping with our Catholic thought, it actually structures itself according to nominalism. So in the structure of the manuals, you find no analysis of happiness. You find a big addition of a section on conscience. You find the law and not virtue is the focus. So the Ten Commandments of the Church and the five, sorry, the Ten Commandments of the Bible and the five precepts of the Church. And you find no reference to the virtues.
And so the presentation of moral theology right up to the Second Vatican Council and in some ways through and past it is very legalistic in its focus. It just takes that as kind of for granted in how it presents things, which means your grandparents, um, even more true, say, of my grandparents, just thinking through generations here, the generations in the build-up to the Second Vatican Council, every question they'd have had in the moral life would have been presented in terms of what you're commanded to do. And the question of why you're commanded to do it, why doing this fulfills your nature, those are just not really relevant questions. That the moral life was presented as, here's a set of obligations, here's a set of commands. And good people do these things, so just do them. Um, now, after the Second Vatican Council, when all chaos breaks loose, um, people say, well, if that's what's being commanded, why can't something else be commanded? There's no basis for the commands. There's, it's just, you know, because there is no nature, if they were thinking metaphysically, but they're not. They're just kind of somehow absorbing that. Why can't the church teach something else about this? Why can't the church say we can have a abortion? Why can't the church say that we can have contraception? Why can't all kinds of things? Um, because it's just a random list of commands. And so those baby boomers get very angry that the church hasn't changed that random list of commands. Because that's the whole way they've inherited the vision of the moral life. What the Catechism tries to articulate is, is to absorb this renewal of St. Thomas, where actually the question of end, fulfillment, the nature of things, virtue and happiness, this, these are the dominant paradigms, the model by which we're looking at all these moral questions which is a very different focus. So the key thing for today's lecture is a glimpse of something of the historical background behind these different approaches to how you look at moral theology. Questions? Do you think that the, the church during the Counter-Reformation was responding in a way that would be more open to like, accepting the people who had, who had um, I guess, fallen victim to the, the writings of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and like being, their manuals were like kind of ways of reaching them easier than, than like being more, just going back to like what was kind of rebelled against in terms of um, the uh, the ethics. For instead of like leaving out all, because of the the fact that they left out you know, happiness, virtues, and grace. Do you think they were trying to focus more on like what the Protestants were um, were focused on? so that they would be able to dialogue, I guess, better with them? I don't know, I'm kind of putting it in a more modern 
lens. But. I don't think, yeah, because I don't think people were talking about dialogue right. then, yeah. Um, I, I think they weren't seeking to engage though. So if the Protestants are structuring everything in a biblical manner, and the, the commandments are a biblical approach to everything, the Counter-Reformation engages in that same structure. The problem, as I would see it, as Pinker sees it, is you end up then with a structure that is entirely commandment and obligation focused. And you ask your typical Protestant why, and they say, the Bible says so. Yeah, they don't ask why. The Bible says so. That's the answer. Um, sorry, Michael. So why can why can't there be an obligation focus with a why behind everything? Then, why do they not see that as necessary? Just because it's the Bible says so. As the fundamental reason why something's true, the Bible has said so. God has said so. Now it's true. Which plays back to normalism. Now it's true you can and you do have writings that actually do look at that as well. But Pinker's complaint would be that even then the presupposition is the fundamental thing is commandment obligation, even if you get a packaging of reasons and why. I think those are a different set of questions. Um, but I suppose it'd just be presumed that you just do what the Bible is saying. Can I move this onto my, what, talk to my bullet point notes and then ask questions through those. Um, so this is kind of presenting as I'm gonna aim to with each lecture, an initial summary of the, the basic thoughts and then we'll talk through them in some more detail. Okay, so. The lecture notes I've handed out to you today, let's start on page one. So page one, I'm kind of doing a few sections here historically. Where would we begin our history of moral theology? Well, you could go back to what we call the Jewish oral tradition. You know, we have this phrase, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, an important thing for us in moral theology is to realize Basically, all of our morality is Jewish morality. And that doesn't mean it's written morality. A lot of our morality comes from the Jewish oral tradition. When we find the Lord Jesus in the Gospels engaging with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's frequently quoting from the oral tradition of the time, which is broadly what the Pharisees had, not just the written um, Pentateuch. Um, Things for us, like abortion and contraception, they come to us via the Jewish oral tradition, even though there are only very vague references written in the Bible. Scripture, um, I say scripture is not a systematic moral treatise, but it does show forth the moral life. So if we're gonna try and think, well, 
where do we find our moral theology? Which, which, which book in the Bible gives us moral theology? Well, it's kind of bits of it everywhere. It's not a nice, tidy section. The fathers of the church. What do we find in the fathers of the church? Well, no, mainly they give us scripture commentaries, they give us sermons, but they don't have any systematic works of moral theology. So they only make reference to the moral life kind of in passing while talking about other things. So, you know, you want your book on moral theology by Gregory of Nyssa? He didn't write one. Um, the kind of exception I note there, St. Gregory the Great. So he was a great moral writer. He's the one who compiled the seven deadly sins that have been kind of standard in the church's packaging of so much of the moral life ever since. Um, but he's kind of the exception in the fathers. Moving on from the fathers, the Middle Ages or the early Medi Middle Ages, uh, you'd have read Pinker's refers to these things called the penitentials. Um, so the penitentials were manuals for confessors assigning penances for specific sins. So how do you avoid, when you go to confession, getting a completely different penance from one priest than you get from another priest? Well, there were lists, the penitentials, that told priests, these sins give these penances. You stole a sheep, here's the penance. You stole, you committed adultery, here's this penance. So the penitentials were kind of the beginning of compilations of the moral life, but they didn't have explanations with them, just listings. The Middle Ages, which I've called uh, the Golden Age of Theology, and in particular the Golden Age of Moral Theology. So St. Thomas, 13th century, why did he write the Summa Theologica? The purpose of it, um, as a footnote there, um, is primarily moral. So the Dominicans, when they were founded, were given the task of preaching and hearing confessions. What's the central thing, therefore, the Dominicans need to know if they're going to preach and hear confessions? They need to know the moral life. So the five volumes in the Summa Theologica, the central two are the moral life which is a disproportionately large focus, unless you understand actually St. Thomas's primary focus is actually the moral life. And he kind of packages it with an introduction uh, and other sections. But his main focus, following the mission of the Dominicans that were given by the Pope, um, is the moral life. Now, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the Summa Theologica? Well, I say the strengths, one, it integrates the tradition, so scripture, the fathers, and the early doctors. So when you read the Summa Theologica, who is he quoting again and again and again, every question he's looking at? This father, that father, that doctor, this ancient source. But he integrates it with philosophy, especially Aristotle and Plato. Um, so St. Thomas will say, the apostle says this uh, as a kind of ending an argument. What's the question? The apostle says this. It's there in the Bible. Apostle always St. Paul, the philosopher, Aristotle. When he quotes Plato and so forth, um, he names them the philosopher, Aristotle. 
Um, and this is a key moment in the history of the church where there's this uh, very deliberate attempt to take the best of human knowledge, philosophy, and integrate it into our presentation of the, the truths of the faith that we get from the tradition. Secondly, I say the other strength in the Summa is that his presentation is virtue and character based, not law and act based. I'll kind of unpack that kind of as we talk about the rest. But um, if we're going to say there are weaknesses in the Summa, well, it's often complained that scripture is used as just proof texts. Um, do you know what a proof text is? End of the argument, yeah. Um, worst case scenario, I can kind of pull this, these four words in the midst of that verse, in the midst of that chapter, but those four words give me the answer uh, I'm looking for. Uh, I plug those in, that ends the debate. Would be a, a misuse of a proof text analysis. The reason, though, St. Thomas uses proof text is because he he holds the authority of the Bible. If the Bible says this, that's the end of the debate. Um, but he does then explain why. But he uses the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Fathers, the authority of the tradition. Okay, let's go through this a bit more slowly on page two. So it says it, moral theology in the Summa Theologica. Um, and I titled that A Morality of Happiness. Yeah, did you read Pinker's? That's how he describes it. What is the morality of St. Thomas? It's a morality of happiness. What does it mean to be moral? To be happy. What does happiness look like? It's the moral life. So the first question of the Prima Secunde is that man acts for his last end, which is happiness, which is found only in God, that the desire for happiness he unpacks connecting Scripture and Aristotle. So in Scripture, the Beatitudes, uh, that Christ's moral discourse in the Sermon on the Mount is introduced by the Beatitudes. You know, Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's big uh, exposition of the moral life, where does he start it? The Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The quest for blessedness, the quest for happiness, that's where he starts. And the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle, how many of you have done that? In, no, you will do that in Ethics, I guess. You just started that, okay. You'll see in that, that is also Aristotle's prime focus. So in that approach, the morality of any act must be measured by whether it conforms to the end. The ultimate end is happiness. Any particular activity has within it a kind of localized end goal. That's what measures whether it's a good act, a moral act. I'm racing through this without much explanation. We will explain conceptually these things in the weeks ahead. So this is kind of an overview. I'm not expecting you to understand everything I'm saying here. 
Okay, analysis of action. Significantly for St. Thomas, he, he wants to analyze how we act. So he, he notes that humans, uh, like plants and animals, act for an end, with different ends for different things. That unlike plants and animals, human acts are free. That unlike angels, humans have passions. We're going to look very explicitly on passions as an aspect of their bodliness. And in St. Thomas, the passions are good. They orient us to goods. But with concupiscence, there's a disorder somehow in the midst of them as well. Um, he notes two principles of human action, internal, external. Um, and the key thing, the structure of the practical application of morality isn't the Ten Commandments, but it's the three theological virtues and the four cardinal virtues. So that's a little sketch of his approach. Nominalism comes along different approach. So that nominalism was the end of metaphysics and the beginning of Protestantism. So metaphysics is, Jake, any ideas? Study of being qua being, what a thing is. Nominalism says you can't know what a thing is. You can just know what you call it. Now, if you can't know what a thing is, how do you know how it should behave? Well, not by looking at the thing. All you can do is know what you've been commanded to do. That's the only basis of morality. Okay, reading through what I've said there a little more slowly, but not much more slowly, sadly, at this stage. William of Ockham, a Franciscan, so he founded nominalism in the 14th century. So whereas Aristotelian metaphysics said each thing is of a type of a nature, each thing acts for an end according to its nature, nominalism says there are no natures. There's only the names we give things. And thus morality can't be evaluated in terms of the end. Well, notice more about this when we look about the question of what freedom is. But in nominalism, human acts are free, but with a different type of freedom, what's called the freedom of indifference. That human acts are only moral when they conform to God's law, not about nature and end. So law and obligation are thus the pivotal concepts. And freedom and law are thus then two polar opposites. Morality is thus henceforth understood as an edict of the legislative will and no longer as a work of wisdom. God doesn't command it because he's wise, rather he just commands it. And the moral life is about what God has commanded, not about what is wise. Yeah. Why is the law the enemy of freedom? Um, because of how freedom is understood. So there's a, we'll, we'll look at what freedom is a bit later. Um, but how you understand freedom depends on, changes how you change all kinds of other things as well. So if freedom flows out of being, 
if freedom flows out of wisdom, then freedom is secondary. In our modern understanding, which broadly speaking is where nominalism has come out of nominalism, freedom is the primary thing. So I'm free to be a woman. I'm free to do whatever. And if you say I can't, well, there's no basis of what you're saying. It's just what you're saying. It's just your command versus my command. So that the law command is the enemy of freedom and there's nothing else to kind of navigate in between. So the, the, these are two things in opposition. Whereas in St. Thomas, nature is first, action flows out of nature, action follows being, um, and the law is the thing that directs action to its end. So actually, therefore, fulfills freedom, isn't the enemy of freedom. So I know that God has commanded me to take care of my body. He's commanded me to eat moderately, um, that gluttony is a sin. If I reject his law in that sense, I am frustrating my own nature. That is against my, the purpose of freedom. It's not the essence of freedom. We'll come back to freedom in a couple of weeks. Okay, the manuals. Page three. So, St. Thomas, 13th century. Nominalism, 14th century. Then we get the Protestant Reformation. Then we get the Council of Trent. We get the Counter-Reformation. The manuals, 17th century. This is the church trying to respond to the problem of the Reformation. Reading my notes here. Nominalism led to the Protestant Reformation, broadly speaking. Protestant morality, like nominalist, focused on law and obligation. So character, personal sanctification and virtue, these are just not relevant for justification in the Protestant mindset. Council of Trent called for seminaries to educate future priests, i.e. ignorance was the pivotal cause of the Reformation. So there weren't seminaries before the Reformation. You didn't have to go through your propedeutic year, your vocational synthesis year. You didn't have to do any of that. But you also didn't know anything. And so, <laughs> you know, the... Wait, the so what was the, how did you become a priest? Um, was it under one, right? Yeah, you, I mean, at very different places, but basically speaking, you'd have gone and lived with a priest kind of the pastoral year would have been your entire thing. Um, so if you, and as long as there aren't heretics running around saying weird stuff and you're just all doing what everyone's been doing before, then you learn how to anoint the sick, you learn how to hear confessions. Where that all gets really problematic is when people are coming around saying 
old things, heresies. Uh, broadly speaking, in that period, the religious orders got educated. So the Dominicans, they got educated. The Dominicans, therefore, roved around and taught the truth. Um, diocesan, you know, you don't, you just do the sacraments, um, mumble your way through a Latin mass that no one understands anyway. Um, so you don't need to know what you're doing. So anyway, so the Council of Trent comes along and says, okay, we had this whole Reformation thing. It kind of happened because our priests didn't know what they were talking about. We're going to educate them from here on in. We need the seminaries, set up the seminaries. We need books in the seminaries. We create these things called the manuals. Each subject, a big fat manual. So back to my notes here. The manuals of theology were drawn up to educate. Trent gave great prominence to St. Thomas Aquinas. So at the Council of Trent, do you know what two books were on the altar throughout the Council of Trent? The Summa and the Bible. Yeah, that's a pretty high ranking for the Summa. Um, so these manuals, they would cite St. Thomas as their most frequent authority. I give the example there, St. Thomas is quoted as the author of the principle of double effect. Some question comes up in the, in the manual that it's looking at. What does St. Thomas say? Pluck out his answer, that's the answer. So all the answers are St. Thomas's answers. But I say the manuals of moral theology follow the structure and theology of nominalism, so that law and obligation was the focus. So if you look at some of the manuals in our library, you can find the chapter. So there's a beginning of a return to virtue kind of halfway through the 20th century. And you can find there, you go through your manual, the chapter on hope, that's a virtue. It instantly says, what are the obligations with respect to hope? Yeah, so you're instantly, you're talking about a virtue, but you're talking about what's the command, what's the obligation, that's all we care about. Um, okay, compare, I say, compare the manual of St. Alphonsus Liguri with the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas. The manual's removed, happiness, not relevant. The ultimate end, not relevant. Virtues, gifts, grace, not relevant. And they added conscience, we'll note a bit more about why and the significance of that when we look at conscience. So the basic structure, if we compare it to St. Thomas, the basic structure is the virtues, the manuals, is the Ten Commandments and the Five Precepts. Conscience, so, so noted briefly, if, if the law and freedom are polar opposites, what intermediates between them, this thing called conscience, becomes very important. Uh, the dominant concept, really, I say, in manualist morality and so interpreting the law was the primary purpose of moral theology. Yeah, so before the council, I couldn't teach moral theology in a seminary unless I was also qualified in canon law. That your canon law was the professor was the guy who taught you moral theology, which gives you a real indication it's all about the law. Now the strengths of the manuals. So, so Morality is presented in a practical and detailed manner. Um, 
And that's why I have a significant number of manuals, old manuals on my shelves here. Someone brings me a question, where do I find a nice practical authoritative answer? I go back to the old manuals. Okay, you're obliged to go to Mass on a Sunday, yes? How far away do you have to live from a church for the obligation to get to Mass on a Sunday to no longer hold? Because if you're a thousand miles away from a church, yeah, you're not obliged to go to Mass on a Sunday, yeah? Well, how far away do you have to live from a church for the Sunday Mass obligation to not hold? That's a pretty important question, pretty practical question. The manuals had answers to all these. Andrew, do you know the answer? Was it two hours? Three miles for a standard person walking, or in the era of cars, um, an hour's driving. Um, that was the standard answer you'd find in the manuals. And the manuals would, their methodology, they would quote other authors who had said different things. If there's a consensus among them all, this is the answer. Um, so three miles or an hour's driving. An hour's driving, written in the manuals of the 1950s, when driving was actually quite difficult. So I think you could say of anything that would be a bigger time in our era when cars are more comfortable, more available. Um, if you don't have a car, you're in the walking frame, uh, frame of reference. If you're 90 years old on your, your stick, that three miles is not gonna somehow be the same criteria. Um, but the manuals had this all laid out, beautiful detail, and they loved these legal focus questions. Okay, can I just have another example here that, you know, as a priest, I offer mass, so you offer mass when you go to mass, yes? Every person brings their own intentions to mass. The priest brings a ministerial intention to the mass. I offer mass for the living and the dead, for the church universal in particular. I also bring a particular ministerial intention. If someone gives me a donation and asks me to offer Mass for that particular intention, I'm obliged in church law to record that and to offer it um, if I've taken the stipend from them. The, canon, the manuals would specify what kind of book I had to write that down in, how precise the thought had to be specified in my intention, um, the manuals answer that for you. Do you have a question? Um, so for the questions that the manuals didn't answer, is this where probabilism comes in? Yeah. Might be jumping ahead. Uh, we'll look at probabilism a bit later, but yeah. Um, do I refer to probabilism there? Um, Okay, so weaknesses of the manuals. Um, so the key weakness is they mistook a part of moral theology for the whole of moral theology. A law and conscience became everything. They reduced, therefore, moral theology to be something less than it fully is. They restricted the domain of moral theology to legal imperatives, and they removed the quest for perfection, mysticism, love, spirituality, and essential questions like the search for happiness.
Now, those things didn't vanish in the Christian tradition, in the Catholic Church. They didn't vanish from the seminaries, but they were taken out of moral theology. They'd have all been done in the spirituality department. But you therefore didn't get that integration with the vision of the moral life. Okay, over the page, let's look at page four. And this is really, if we get through this page, I'm kind of happy with what we've done today. Um, Vatican II, what happened at Vatican II? Well, the preconciliar manuals. So the manuals were being used right up to the Second Vatican Council. All the bishops of the Second Vatican Council, where would they have been, what would they have been taught with? All the manuals. I note here, the build-up to Vatican II, saw manuals attempt to recover some of the insights of St. Thomas. Thus some, but not many, had happiness restored as the first question, and virtues used to structure the table of contents. But they maintained the legalistic focus in their content. So you might start with happiness and then, what are my obligations with respect to happiness? Um, Okay, I note that a post-conciliar manual. So if you want that wonderful attention to detail, in a sense that pastoral attention to detail, but in the post-conciliar phase, an author called Germain Griset, I would particularly recommend to you, he's developed a three-volume manual of moral theology. Uh, no one, neither Dr. Murphy nor myself are advocates of his. We both feel he's not authentic to St. Thomas and is still basically legalistic in his focus. Um, but there are lots of practical, detailed answers you find in his work. Um, okay, going up to the Second Vatican Council, say there was a call for reform of moral theology. So the Second Vatican Council, the document Optatum Totius says, Special attention needs to be given to the development of moral theology. Its scientific exposition should be more thoroughly nourished by scriptural teaching. That sexual morality must be based on the nature of the human person and his acts. Uh, and also, as a footnote, specifically saying that seminary formation should return to the moral theology of St. Thomas. Post-conciliar, the era I've lived through, um, your parents lived through. Um, I summarize that post-conciliar in four, four stages there. First, so pre-conciliar, we had the legalistic morality with the manuals. So say, my grandparents, and my grandparents actually be, my Catholic grandparents would be good examples of this. They were, in a sense, good Catholics. They did what the church said. And the question of why the church said it, you know, just wasn't relevant. They just did what the church said. Um, Post-conciliar, absolute moral chaos. Every possible moral issue was denied or questioned. There's confusion about methodology as well as the specifics. And moral thinking became very polarized, especially about sex. So, um, Second Vatican Council ended 1965. Um, 
the great revolution of sexual morality in the Western world, the, the summer of love in 1968, you know, all of that was happening at the same time. Um, and within the church too, almost any question you look at at that time period, you can find kind of respectable people questioning anything that would have been just assumed in the um, decades before. Stage three, John Paul II, Veritatis Splendor. So in 1992, he produces this encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, which reaffirmed various, various basics. It rejected several what were called reformist positions and called for a renewed moral theology. So 1992, I was in seminary then. The two professors of moral theology who taught me were both advocates of a school of thought called proportionalism which was actually condemned by Veritas' Splendor. Um, so what are my professors going to do? Here's this document that's come out, and it says, you are a heretic. Um, <laughs> so they, with, you know, they said various things. They said the Pope didn't understand them, that it was much more complicated than the Pope had made out. And you know, he's Polish. Um, well, seriously, that was said a lot, that, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not Western, he just doesn't understand. Um, catechism came out at the same time. Um, I can remember my professor of dogmatic theology saying, the catechism is a dangerous document, he said. Um, he particularly objected to the section in there on Christology. I can remember him saying, it emphasizes the divinity of Christ. Big problem. Um, you know, I'm not that old. That was so in the 90s, um, that was dominant as what was going on and what was wrong in many American, Western European seminaries. Um, so when you complain today, phew, you guys, you don't know you have don't know how easy you've got it. Um, okay, what's the situation now? Because all those liberals teaching the seminaries, they didn't just politely fold their books and go and hide in the corner. Um, what is the situation now? Well, I'd say now we're in many ways even more polarized in the church in terms of us and them. I've noticed 25 years I've been either studying theology or priest, um, there was a phase when the kind of us and them, we'd read each other's books. I'd know what they were saying. They would have, they weren't as interested in what we were saying, but they might have a vague idea. Now I feel we don't even know, we, we don't even know the conferences that are going on. I, I'm not interested in what the conferences where they are yet again got some rainbow pride whatever thing um i'm not re interested in reading their rationalization they have no idea what i'm saying here uh, so there's a different kind of polarization that's happening in the church um, it's also true as i think i made the point before generally speaking the more liberal churches are just dying. 
the, the liberal Protestant churches that are kind of demanding nothing of people morally, they're just dying. If you have low standards, there's just nothing you're pulling people to. And similarly within the church, diocese by diocese across the US, you can see dioceses where they have priestly vocations, where they have people at mass, and other dioceses where they don't have priestly vocations. They don't have nuns in their convents. Um, okay, so where are we at now? A kind of polarized state. But within this field of moral theology, I'd say there's a general acknowledgement of this thing called virtue ethics. Um, but there's some debate about what we mean by that. Um, some kind of make virtue ethics such a relativistic thing that it's kind of completely up to you to decide what virtue is. Um, we'll come on to that when we look at what a virtue is in a few weeks. Okay. Comments, thoughts thus far? Yeah. Um, looking at the manual, do you think that Vatican II would have been necessary if they had never removed the ultimate end and the virtues? Because, like, with Vatican II, it came like, changes in the liturgy as well. I'm curious. So, the manuals, the, the manuals I'm talking about were about moral theology. So the manuals on right. So the manuals on the Trinity, I'm not saying were problematic. Um, they might have been very boring and encyclopedic in their approach, from what I heard older priests complain. I'm following, broadly speaking, Pinker's and the renewal of moral theology. They have a particular complaint about the manuals of moral theology which they're not saying was equally problematic about other manuals. So your manual on liturgy, your manual on the sacraments and so forth, I'm not saying structurally there were problems there. So why do you think they changed them? Oh, that's a different question. I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> I think that in general there is just... Uh, A desire for a broader education in, in a good sense the manuals were very narrow in so you only had one book but there wasn't much imagination going into it what have I been trying to give you this morning a bit of an overview of history a bit of an awareness that different centuries the whole approach to how we ask what is moral theology, what is the moral life, that's varied over the centuries. Even among good Catholics, it's varied. A big shift that happens in methodology around the time of the Second Vatican Council, um, the chaos that follows with St. John Paul II, an attempt to remedy that chaos by asserting certain truths, but also in giving you the catechism, the vision of the moral life presented in there, isn't just about you must do these things, you must come back to these basics, but is actually returning to a whole approach here, beatitude, the end, the virtues, 
um, that is a different approach, even though your, your commandments are still there, the, the what must I do, that doesn't change, but the packaging, the approach, that has changed. Last thing, page five. I'm just going to briefly run through here the question of defining what is moral theology. So if we're going to talk about what moral theology is, we need to first remember what theology is. So I say that theology has as its subject matter God speaking, divine revelation. So it's not concerned about what we think. It's not concerned about what we deduce to be likely. It's what God has said. That's, that's theology. So faith, I say, is our response to revelation, response to what he said. So it's a revelation made manifest in and by Jesus Christ. A revelation which gives us this thing called the deposit of faith. So imagine that's an image like in a bank, a deposit's made, and it's there in the bank to be drawn from. And all down the centuries, the church is drawing from the same deposit, and the deposit never changes. St. Jude says in the epistle, the deposit given once and for all to the saints. That same one deposit, God spoke. He spoke then, that's what we're drawing from, this deposit. A deposit transmitted by the church in tradition and scripture um, and that the knowledge that comes from faith provides us with certitude since there's nothing more certain than God's own word. You know the hymn, truth himself speaks truly or there's nothing true. He says it's his body and blood. There's nothing more certain than what God has said. Theology, quoting St. Anselm there, theology is faith-seeking understanding. So God has spoken, we seek to understand what he has said, that is theology. Now moral theology is that branch of theology that applies theology to action. It therefore concerns the means to the end. So it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. So it also includes, therefore, broad issues of union with Christ, the virtues, the dispositions, all the things that enable us to get to the end. Canon law. Um, if moral theology concerns right and wrong, then it does concern the law. So the preconciliar manuals of moral theology had large sections on canon law. The interpretation of it was the primary focus. Um, so positively that gave moral theology very practical focus, but negatively it reduced moral theology to something less than it fully is. It's just a part for the whole. So how are we then gonna sum that up with a definition? So at the bottom there, the definition and here I'm drawing from Pinkers, who was the author you read earlier. Christian ethics is the branch of theology that studies human acts 
so as to direct them to a loving vision of God who is seen as our true, complete happiness and our final end. And this vision is attained by means of grace, the virtues and the gifts, and the light of revelation and reason. So the definition of moral theology there about getting you to the end, about getting you to that loving vision of God, which is what unites us to him, it's not primarily about learning the commands that he has given us. The commands are part of what he has given us. You can't get to the end without keeping the commands. If you try to bypass the commands, you're not going to get to the end. But the end is the focus, not primarily the end, the, the commands. Thoughts, questions, comments? I'm aware this is a second kind of introductory lecture. I'm throwing a lot of stuff out here. I'm reading through this text very fast. That's because I'm still kind of laying down an introductory vision of what we're going to do in this course. But did, didn't nominalism and Protestantism still have like an end of, like, of salvation? Like, it, an end in that sense, yeah. If I do what God commands, then he will reward me. The reward wasn't connected to the behavior. So let me put a, 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 an example here. If I eat healthily, I am rewarded with a healthy body. In nominalism, the reward and the action are utterly unconnected. I eat healthily because God has commanded me, and utterly randomly, as a reward, he gives me a healthy body. There's no connection between behavior and reward it's just, he has commanded it, he decides what reward he will give. In the Thomistic focus, he has commanded me to eat healthily. He has commanded it because of the kind of being I am. And the reward he gives me is actually the fulfillment of my nature that he commanded me to fulfill in the thing he told me to do, to eat in a healthy manner. Does that example contrast there? Yes. Helps. Helps. I've thrown a lot of random stuff at you today. Yeah, I've taught fast today. It won't be the same every day. Um, Okay, summarizing briefly. So, what have we been doing today? A historical overview of this thing, moral theology, that we're looking at as an introduction in this course, trying to indicate there isn't only one way of approaching this subject, there have been different ways. Um, I'm arguing the catechism is returning us to the way of St. Thomas, 
which is rooted in good philosophy, in the conviction that we can know our nature, we can know our end, and we can know how to fulfill that. But there was this notion, primarily through nominalism, where the focus wasn't on nature and fulfillment, but obedience, command, and rewards that just didn't connect in any inherent way with the behavior, but were just rewards given you because you did what he commanded you. Um, what is our next lecture to m on? Who's got their guide? I think our next one is on the sources of moral theology. Yeah, scripture, tradition, magisterium.